You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an associate professor of sociology and the director of global studies at the University of Chicago, as well as an award-winning scholar, author, and teacher. She received the 2020 Louis A. Kozer Award from the American Sociological Association on Sociological Theory, a mid-career award for theoretical agenda setting. Her books and articles have been awarded over 18 prizes from several different professional associations. Holding a PhD in sociology from UC Berkeley, her latest book is titled Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Kimberly K. Hung. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Well, firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about your background, your research interests, and how you got into sociology. Sure. So I, um, uh, I'm a sociologist by training. I'm uh, actually... I don't know how far in terms of background you want to go, but I'm Vietnamese American. My parents were war, war refugees. Um, that kind of explains my um, interest in uh, these emerging and frontier markets of Vietnam and Myanmar. But I was born in the U.S., um, raised in the U.S., and um, I got into sociology primarily because I was really interested in studying people um, and looking at um, people in a global society. I guess that's how I ended up directing the Global Studies Program. And I think uh, I fell into uh, the subfield of economic sociology in particular as my research interests uh, developed and evolved over time. So my first book, Dealing in Desire, is a book that's a study about the sex industry in Vietnam. And it looks at the, how, the ways in which the sex industry facilitates foreign investment into this frontier market where there's lack of c- clear rule of law um, and where a lot of deals are done on the basis of trust and handshakes. And then that sort of led me into my second book project, where I really um, got interested in digging even deeper into this story of spiderweb capitalism, which is really bringing a sociological take to an economics question, which is really about how do people make and create markets? And how do we think about the decisions people make in making investments in frontier markets where there's lack of clear rule of law, where relationships matter, um, so on and so forth? Okay, so your latest book um, is titled Spiderweb Capitalism, How Global Elites Exploit Frontier Markets. And as I understand, the book involved an extensive research process and years of traveling. So can you tell us a little bit about how your latest book came about and your journey in writing it? Yeah, so I was very interested in a, a much smaller question when I started this book. The question I was interested in was how do... Western investors, particularly U.S. investors who are constrained by the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, compete with investors from East and Southeast Asia. And here I'm really thinking about China, Malaysia, South Korea, um, who are making investments in frontier markets, but who are not constrained by foreign laws around corruption and bribery. And this is a time when emerging markets and frontier markets were Um, very hot. And many of our portfolios are invested in these markets and everyone was looking to try to get exposure or access to the markets. And so I was just really interested in what I thought at the time was a simple question. When I got to, so I applied for a couple of external grants and was funded by um, Fulbright and the Social Science Research Council. 
with the idea that I would spend significant time in Vietnam and Myanmar interviewing um, businessmen and women, smaller number of women, but some most primarily men uh, coming from all around the world and looking at how their the laws of their countries of citizenship constrain or enable um, or provide opportunities in this new market. When I got there, though, I, what I learned, um, I would say fairly quickly, was that um, many of the investments going into Southeast Asia were actually just subsidiaries of um, other entities that were sitting in Hong Kong and Singapore. And that sort of thrust me into a world of offshoring to really think about the ways in which offshore structures or offshore vehicles um, play a really important role in the in shaping foreign investment in these frontier markets for all actors around the world, all financial um, actors around the world. And so that sort of led to a much bigger project where I traveled over 350,000 miles between 2016, 2017, and I would even say subsequent years, 18, 2018, 2019, and 2020, right before the shutdown, basically interviewing um, over 300 individuals. And these are ultra high net worth individuals whose money is being invested all around the world. And high net worth individuals are who are basically the financial professionals who put that money to work, who, um, and those are fund managers, bankers, lawyers, uh, company secretaries, public relations agents, all of the people involved in the sort of um, nitty gritty parts of the deals. So in the introduction, you write, quote, this book focuses on one primary question. How do global elites capitalize on risky frontier markets? So I wanted to start with sort of a, a hypothetical th thought experiment. Let's say that we have this hypothetical um, ultra high net worth individual hedge fund manager in America that wants to, as you state, capitalize on a risky frontier market in, say, Vietnam or Myanmar or something like that. Um, so can you give us a walkthrough of the mechanisms and offshore vehicles he would use um, to invest his money in a place like that? Um, and why might he do that? That's a really good question. I, one of the ways in which I think about um, spiderweb capitalism is this idea of thinking about a web that is built by a group of social spiders from multiple ends. So if a high net worth individual, um, ultra high net worth individual, let's say sitting in New York is interested in getting exposure to these markets, most likely that individual has their own set of offshore structures set up to begin with. And they typically will have a put together a um, fund with a mandate that says, you know, we want this fund will make investments in emerging frontier markets. Then typically what would happen is that they would um, start to look. And but there, the, the reason why I say the web gets constructed on both ends is that at the same time, you have fund managers um, who are based in Southeast Asia. And here I really mean Singapore, Hong Kong, in my particular case but then also based in Vietnam. And those people are the people who have sort of exclusive access to deals that are not always available on the public market. And so those are the people that are typically based in Southeast Asia. They're based in Vietnam, they're based in Myanmar, they're based in Singapore and Hong Kong. And those are the people that sort of have access to deals that a person sitting in New York, although I would say many of these global ultra high net worth individuals are global. So they're not always just sitting in Western countries. They're from Russia, from Ukraine, from Kazakhstan, from all around the world. And so I don't want to stereotype and just say it's, a, you know, only ultra high net worth individuals are in New York City. 
But the point is, is that they're both of those individuals sitting in um, various parts of the world have their own webs. And it's a question, it's an idea, it's a, it's a issue of putting those two, putting these smaller webs and connecting them to bigger webs that have access to larger pools of potential, uh, larger pools of funds and potential investors. Um, that's the way that I, I conceptualize and think about this when you sort of put people together um, and looking at this with a sort of 10,000 foot view up in the air. Okay. Um, so as you said in the introduction, there are three key goals that you have in this book. Um, the first of which is to explore the structure of markets that you call spider web capitalism. So can you tell us what this, this, um, well, I think you already gave us sort of an overview of what this spider web capitalism term means. Um, but can you give us, um, an overview of how they're typically structured, like sort of a step-by-step, -step, you know, um, so say we have this, this hypothetical fund manager that we just discussed, um, and he wants to take advantage of a frontier market emerging in Vietnam. Um, so what would sort of be his, his step-by-step, -step? would he set up a fund that you talked about? Would that be in America, um, or in Vietnam and Singapore and, or in Hong Kong, one of the Southeast Asian countries? Um, you know, why Singapore and Hong Kong as opposed to just in Vietnam or Myanmar directly? And then, you know, where, what, what journey would that money take? Um, and you know, why, why would that, why might that even be a lucrative investment in the first place? Those are some really good questions. So one thing that I will say is that part of the reason why I spent so much time and I interviewed so many people for this project was that I was really looking for um, specific patterns and practices. And what I found to be fascinating, what I ultimately found that was fascinating is that there isn't one single structure for any one of these webs. And in fact, the webs are purposefully obscure, they're obscured in that they're, the structures are all set up very differently. And so in the book I give, I try to kind of give um, pictures of what some of these webs might look like. But I wouldn't say, oh, if here's a picture of one web and then and you can go replicate that and all of these, ultimately all ultra high net worth individuals have webs that look something like this. So I, I say this with a caveat that with qualitative work, what you, it's messy and, 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 um, and there's no one sort of structure. So I could give you an example where um, in the book, in, in chapter five of the book, and I also give an example, there are two examples that come to mind right now as, as you're asking this question. There's a guy named Fritz, who I introduced in chapter one, um, and I give a detailed sort of structure. But I want to give you this other guy named Will, who I introduced in chapter five of the book. So this guy is a Vietnamese German who runs a family office that's based in Singapore, they have about $100 million of assets under management, and his firm, as he describes it to me, makes strategic investments in frontier markets like South, of Southeast Asia. So that fund has money that was, has been raised from all around the world. And from, the office at, from his office in Singapore, um, they make investments in projects that across, across a diverse sector of uh, sectors of the economy, banking, consumer products, education healthcare, infrastructure, technology, and telecommunications. And I often, in the time, I often thought like, well, how do how could one firm that's quite small, these family offices, have so much strategic know-how across different sectors of the economy? And what was fascinating to me was it wasn't so much about strategic know-how or making strategic investments in areas of expertise, it's really about access to deals. And much of that has to do with the political relationships on the ground, which is about access to licensing, deals that are not available on the public market, 
um, getting permits, et cetera, et cetera, you know, transforming state-owned enterprises into and privatizing them, the list goes on. And once they decide to make an investment, they typically make investments in, um, they make smaller size investments uh, that are, you know, they start out with sort of a five to $10 million investment with a seven to 10 year horizon. Um, and, you know, um, and the way that it's set up is that Will explains to me that, you know, he has, he, he, his whole operation is, is sort of a maze to him. And, and many people told me this, that they have lost count of the total number of offshore structures the firm set up. And part of that is because it, with every transaction, there's a new offshore structure set up. And then when they exited that you know, investment, that just sits there often as a vintage company. And part of this is so that you create legal firewalls between the different investments. Um, but what he describes as a, as a sort of overview is that their main fund is domiciled in Guernsey, but the majority of the subsidiaries are domiciled in the Cayman Islands to secure this a tax-exempt status there. And then they have offices set up in Singapore um, that is all that in this structure is also considered offshore with onshore investments and operations in Vietnam, Cambodia and Myanmar. And the way that he explained it to me was that um, it's set up this way completely legally as a way to keep their taxes low and to keep that um, to to basically. I'm sorry, I'm trying to think about this in English to um, essentially um, uh, sort of like, uh, what is it called? Um, it's a it's a profit shifting scheme of um, sending down funds only to cover operations so that all of the liabilities are sitting onshore while the assets or the profits are offshore. And so what's interesting about this structure is that while the person who's sitting in Singapore has made these investments, they have a partner that they've formed a joint venture with often um, and, and managers who are managing those funds in Vietnam. And so they're, so in some ways, their relationships are obfuscated from one another because they will say, okay, the will will say, okay, we're going to make these investments five to 10 million. And, and it's sort of like a roulette. We're going to, you know, go to, you know, make it in all of these different places the ways in which the fund manager handles those investments and manages that money onshore um, is 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 sort of overseen, but um, much more from from a distance. And part of that is because there much of the work of playing in the gray, which I talk about in this, is done onshore. And a lot of that work of playing in the gray is is flirting with the space between what's legal or illegal or front running legal structures. And that here, a person like Will is relying on his local partner um, to sort of carry out the footwork uh, uh, with, with all of that activity. All right. So the next goal that you mentioned is to examine the people who make and move money around through offshore vehicles. So can you tell us a bit about the types of people that are typically involved in such endeavors and what their motivation might be to go this particular route? I mean, how, how lucrative can these investments be? Um, you know, as opposed to other investments that might be open to them um, and, and, you know, why they might be looking to get involved in these frontier markets? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that the people that I've interviewed are really diverse. What struck me the most was how global they were. Um, I sort of went into this with the, maybe a stereotype that uh, or a misconception that ultra high net worth individuals or the billionaires of the world ultimately come from the United States and Western Europe. And it was really 
surprised to see not only um, the diversity of investors and where they come from, but that they come from places like China and Russia and Ukraine, Kazakhstan, um, Middle, the Middle East, other parts of Southeast Asia, so South Korea, Japan. Um, and in many ways, it's a moment where we're seeing the, really the rise of the East and, um, and the decline of the West, which I sort of touch on in my first book, Dealing in Desire. Um, I think that it, it's a time when a lot of people are seeing are looking at places like the United States and Western Europe, where there's transparency and clear rule of law, and they're seeing re, you know returns on investments in their portfolio as sort of safe investments. It's where they hold the the majority of their holdings are in, um, you know, I would say the S and P five hundred or in index funds, where there you're seeing you know anywhere between three to five three to you know seven percent returns on investments. And the appetite for emerging markets really is that this is a time where you start, you were seeing, you know, at minimum um, growth rates of seven to eight percent, which is the sort of GDP, the, the sort of growth, that, that's just like the growth of the country. But most of the investments that we were looking at at the time were seeing returns on investments in the order of 15 to 25 percent, which is significant if you're comparing that to developed economies. And th that, I think, was what drew people to these markets. I think yet another draw to these markets is, is, precisely the, is, is precisely its frontier nature. So it's a place where you know, um, investors who've made a lot of money in other places, uh, and then suddenly there's a new set of laws and regulations in those more developed economies can take those strategies and kind of front run new, new um, economies where the state doesn't have the capacity to um, develop, uh, you know, law, laws and policies to regulate these financial activities. So, I mean, one one thing that comes to mind really is transfer pricing practices, where you start to see the U.S. government and um, various parts of Western Europe try to regulate and crack down on these transfer pricing um, strategies. So, what did many of these people do? Well, first they they just went to China and India. And then when China and India started cracking down on these various laws and decrees, they moved those strategies to newer frontiers, Vietnam, and then after Vietnam, Myanmar. I think Myanmar is a bit of a challenge now after um, some of the recent, um, you know, political, um, uh, you know, things that have happened there. I just I kind of want to be careful with what I say. But uh, I think that, you know, even in Vietnam, it was just when you go to Vietnam and you ask people, they're saying, like, oh, we're just piggybacking off of. Um, strategies that we saw in China and in India, and it's and by the way, it's a new frontier, so it's high risk, high reward. So I wouldn't say that people who are making these investments are dumping their entire portfolio in the market. It's that they want to have some exposure, and just that some exposure. Um, well, it's a it's a marginal percentage of an individual fund's portfolio collectively or together. It's a significant amount of money that is really shaping the development of these nations. So, you know, from the time that I did this research in Vietnam, for example, in 2016, 2017, you've really seen the rise of local Vietnamese billionaires hit these lists. And much of that has to do with the, the growth of the, um, the local economy, but also the foreign investment that has come in that has, um, you know, helped push that growth ahead as well. Okay, um, so the final goal that you talk about is to reveal how elites finesse the gray space between legal and illegal practices to establish significant social and political connections that allow them to exploit new frontiers. 
So can you tell us a bit more about what you mean by exploiting the gray space and what the results and implications of such practices might be? So, I mean, so far we've heard a lot about the the one side, right? Um, how investors and ultra high net worth individuals, um, you know, around the world might go about setting up these these offshore vehicles and, and investing their money, what their motivations might be. So we've talked about that, but what we haven't really heard is, you know, what, what goes on on the other side. So once they've invested this money um, in these frontier markets, once this money makes its way to Vietnam, or Myanmar, regardless of where it came from, what is it doing once it gets there? What what impacts is that having, um, you know, positive, negative, whatever? I think that's a really great question. So the, the one thing I will say about playing in the gray is that it's really, there are a couple of things that I'm trying to highlight here. From a macro place, it's it's about finessing the, sp- the space between legal and illegal activity, front-running the market and the law. In practice, you know, on the ground, it it means that these are markets where there's not a ton of data and where people are making investments on the basis of a gut feeling or an emotion or a feeling of this sort of like economy being dynamic. I mean, it makes me think of, um, you know, Los Angeles as a sort of like, as a, you know, a city that was made, right? It was made to attract, it was a, at one point a frontier that was made to attract all kinds of investments. And I think we're seeing that today's version of that is in in East and Southeast Asia. And what that means, though, in practice is that you have um, a continuum uh, along what I would what I call varieties of corruption. So everything from something so simple of what people what my interview is described to me as playing to the white of the gray, which is like being comfortable with paying small facilitation payments like twenty five dollars, one hundred dollars to um, get a public administration official to move forward more quickly uh, with, you know, and these are very inefficient bureaucracies. So it's to essentially make the bureaucracies more efficient. Um, but then there's sort of like, and then there is the practice of tax evasion where um, early firms that are sort of, I would say like greenfield investments operate with two books, one for the tax authorities, one for themselves, sometimes three books, one for the tax authorities, one for themselves, one for the investors. Um, and then they're sort of like playing to towards the um, towards the black of the gray, where you know the bribery takes on much more sophisticated forms and also involves higher levels of the state. And so there, it's not just sort of like cash handed over in terms of red envelopes. It's like there are a number of strategies, like hiring um, close family members of public officials to serve as fixers. We, we see this now in the US even. So I, I wouldn't say that it's you know something that's only happening over there in a frontier market because under the Trump administration, Michael Cohen um, as a fixer and all of you know Trump's fixers have been coming out in the news recently. But you know, it's you just have local fixers who um, basically their job is to manage government relations. And what happens is that they get shares of the investments through designated nominees. There's just a paper owner, um, and this is all set up again offshore to compensate those individuals via salary or shares in the investments. And that, and, and again, those figures range quite a bit. It could be something so small as a you know as annual salary. It could be something big as like thirty percent of the shares um, on these investments go to to um, the fixers. And so I think that um, there is a lot of ways in which playing in the gray. Uh, it's it's a very gray space. And, and the reason why it's gray is because not all of this activity 
is illegal. What's legal in one um, jurisdiction, like you know Vietnam or Myanmar, may be illegal abroad, but it's it's and it's also not illegal for everybody. That also um, differs based on country of citizenship. And so, what's interesting, what was interesting to me was that there were a couple of people that I spoke with who were U.S. citizens but had spent over 20 years of their lives living and working in Vietnam, other parts of Southeast Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, and were really thinking very seriously about giving up their U.S. citizenship so that they would not be constrained by these foreign um, laws around bribery and transparency, particularly when under the Obama administration, there was a lot of, um, I would say, talk about trying to find out who the ultimate beneficiary is through these due diligence policies and what was known as KYC, so know your client, that um, U.S. passport holders were subjected to in ways that those from other countries were not subjected to when, you know, in doing simple things like opening a bank account, you know, moving funds for these investments, uh, you know, all of that. Okay. Um, so finally, I wanted to finish off by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising or that you didn't expect. Um, you know, that's a really great question. I think that what was surprising to me were the sort of moral economies that people operated with. Um, what really struck me, and I, this is, again, as a sociologist and really being interested in people, were the different ways in which people justified their actions or activities in these markets. So I call them sort of different moral regimes of justification. But what was what really struck me was how reflexive people were about the ways that they had to navigate playing in the gray and the different um, ways in which they reflected on what exactly they were doing in this market. Um, and the other thing I would say that really struck me was just sort of the experiences of what they call feast or famine, like the real kind of human experience or the psychology behind what it means to have an investment that does very well and make a ton of money and suddenly become increasingly paranoid that everybody only wants to have a relationship with you to court you for a new investment opportunity. Um, and I think that for many of those people who were wildly successful in these markets were ironically incredibly lonely in there in the process of the exit. Um, but then there were also people because these are high risk, high reward markets who lost a, a ton of money in these markets and um, watching them sort of go through that experience and thinking about who they trusted and who their go-to people were, um, what I thought was ironic there was that they had a, a pretty vast and wide community um, to of people to, to connect with and to get support from, uh, and that there was a certain kind of resiliency in these markets that I just didn't expect to see. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Hung. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.